Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode five with your hosts, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today is... Justin Silverio. From... JS2 Homes. And... Open Letter Marketing. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Welcome, Justin. I think, Justin, you started JS2 Homes in 2012. You've built a really successful wholesaling and development business with JS2 Homes. And then the last few years, I believe 2016, you started Open Letter Marketing, which has become one of the premier go-to marketing companies. Direct mail. Direct mail catered towards the real estate industry. Can we start with just a definition? Can you tell us about the difference between direct mail and how you might otherwise find deals? So I, I look at direct mail as direct-to-seller marketing. So that's kind of what we focus on is direct-to-seller marketing, whether that's direct mail, ringless voicemails, IP marketing. So we ha- we do a lot of different things to get directly to sellers. Awesome. So do you want to talk a little bit about JS2 Homes and how that came to be and what your background is and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, thanks. Well, I appreciate this, guys. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for yeah. great. Thanks no. for joining us. Welcome. So I started JS2 Homes, as you mentioned, in 2012. But even prior to that, I did my first deal in 2011. Real estate was something I was always interested in when I was growing up because my father was a general contractor. And I always thought it was really interesting of how he created homes with raw materials. So I was always fascinated by that, but I never wanted to be a contractor. Just had no interest in doing that. How long had he been doing that for? He had been doing that. I mean, from when I was born, he was doing that. So he... 45 years in before he retired. Wow. So it was always kind of around that when we built our house, I'd walk through the our house that he was building and would just kind of, you know, when everything was studded off and it would just be so fascinating to me. But again, didn't want to be a contractor, wanted to go to college, go that route. It all circled back about 2010, 2011 when I saw maybe HGTV and all those shows kind of coming out and I was like, oh my God, this is this is really cool stuff. And I was like, It's awesome from my perspective because at the time I was an accountant. So I knew the numbers really well. I felt really comfortable with doing an analysis, but I didn't know the construction side. So I I went to my father and I asked him and I said, is this something that you'd be interested in doing with me? He's like, yeah, let's kind of take a look at it. When you say you knew the numbers, you're talking about you knew the numbers from the real estate side? I felt comfortable that I could do the analysis from just an analysis perspective. And was there any help from him on that part of it too? Not too much on that side. I mean, I just did a lot of self-taught and, you know, reading blogs, going on bigger pockets, stuff like that. Well, what about like numbers in terms of costs? I didn't really know. So he he helped me out on that side. But it's funny because you think he would have it down to a science, but as a contractor, he knew retail numbers. He didn't know construction numbers. So when he would put a value on it, I'm like, man, I feel like there's other people that are getting it for so much lower. Because at that time, I was going to networking events and hearing costs and all that stuff, and they just didn't line up. They were like 50% off. Well, he probably knew the real numbers. He just wanted to make his (laughs) fee on your projects. (laughs) Well, he wasn't doing the work. He was just managing. So I would never have his guys because I know that he did high-end stuff, and I said, I will never have your guys come on our projects because they can make a lot more doing residential or retail stuff. So anything that we have come in, it's going to be other people. You just manage that side. I'll manage, I'll find the properties, I'll manage the numbers, I'll sell the properties and all of that. 
And we started, we did our first one in 2011, about three months after my first kid was born, which was uh, super challenging. And then we formed JS2 Homes in 2012 and continued to do that for, I think, another three or four years after that until it got to a point where he's like, listen, I'm just, I'm only in here to help you out. When you feel comfortable and going on your own, just let me know. You can buy me out of the company and keep on going. So that's what I did. It came to a point in time where I was still working my day job, but I felt comfortable enough that I knew the construction numbers and I knew the whole process that I could actually buy him out of the company, keep on going. Now he supports me from either consulting standpoint or private lender standpoint, which is cool. Was it hard being a partner with your dad or a family member? It was the best partnership I've ever had. Really? By far. Because so, By far. Yeah. And yeah. what about like the whole buyout process? Was it uncomfortable then? No, very easy. Actually, that was going to be my question was, uh, yeah, how did you come up with a valuation? Because obviously when you're developing, it's just whatever project you're working on. So how do you calculate the value of a company? It was basically when, when all the projects sold that we were doing together, then we would split that and then the next ones would kind of flow into me. Nice. Yeah. I guess talk about the first deal. Talk about what it was and how much money you put the into it, how much you one. bought it. The first one. The first one, yeah. So the first one was a property that I purchased in Reading, and it was on market. And at the time in 2011, you can buy on market properties. And Reading, um, Reading and make, is for people that aren't familiar with it's Yeah, for Reading, it's probably a mid to high end town. Purchase price was probably around. It's got to be somewhere around two to three hundred thousand, and it was a ranch style home, maybe eleven hundred square feet. When we went into it, it was probably a larger rehab that I think most people do, where we actually add an addition. We completely gutted the whole property inside and out. So we put probably about 90000 into that property. I think we came out making about $15,000, $15,000. And I remember at the end, we looked at each other and we were like, shit, I hope we make more money than this on the next one. But to be quite honest, I, I also looked at it from the perspective, wow, I just made twelve dollars or $15,000 and just learned so much that I was a- actually able to pay myself through learning. You didn't lose money. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, there's a win right there. Absolutely. How many deals now are you doing a year? Right now, so I, don't, I still don't do large volume. That's just not my play, and it never has been. Although, starting this year, I'm going to start to do a little bit more deals, but it's going to be more on the wholesale side. So at any point in time, I was probably doing anywhere from maybe four to eight deals a year. And they're just, they're higher margin deals where I think in a lot of other markets, people might make five to $15,000 in a wholesale. The spreads are going to be much larger in our area just because the price points are much larger. So it's not unrealistic to get anywhere from a $30,000 to $150,000 wholesale spread. So you said that on your first deal, you had found it on MLS and you said you could still find deals on MLS back then, which implies obviously that you think the current market, you are much better off using alternate ways to source deals. Your company's open letter marketing. Can you tell us a little bit about what that entails and how such a campaign would go? Absolutely. So if I can just back up to, I've always found the large majority, 90% plus on direct to seller marketing. That's always been my strategy, my number one strategy on finding deals. And I started that out doing that in 2012 because just again, reading bigger pockets, all the you know blogs that people had out there, I always wanted to be in control of finding my own deals and not having to rely on other people or other sources. So direct to seller was right up my alley because I could control getting right in front of the sellers. So that was kind of my intro into direct mail. And over the years, I just became very infatuated with response rates and results and always wanting to do better and and find different tweaks to how I was doing it versus other people until I had a really good method 
on finding deals through the types of products that I was putting out, there was just no other product like it on the market. If I put out a product, I said to myself, it has to have a lot of value. It has to have more value than I'm charging for it in order for me to do anything. So I had that struggle before I even started open letter marketing because I wanted to make sure that it was going to be awesome. And it was actually around the time that I quit my full-time job and went into real estate investing full-time that I said, all right, I have now have more time to focus on direct mail and make sure it's going to be successful for other people. And I felt comfortable putting that out for as a product. I think there's a misconception out there that if you sit down a couple nights a week and just pen out some letters and put them in the mailbox, you will get results. Can you talk about why that's a misconception and what the timing of a strategy and a marketing campaign really looks like? There are a number of core components to have a very, very successful direct mail campaign. I would say the first thing is your lead list. The next piece is your mailers. The next one, which is probably the largest, is consistency. That one is probably the most important one because you can send out Bad mailers, but if you're consistent, you will get deals. If you send out one or two mailers, even when people talk to me today, they're like, hey, I just want to throw out a couple mailers, um, you know, a couple hundred mailers this month. And I'm like, well, are you going to put on a campaign? No, I'm just going to do it and see what I come back with. I just tell them, save your money because literally just write a checkout to me and get no marketing at all because yeah. you're, that's exactly what you're doing. Because think about it. Direct mail and directive seller marketing is all about time and circumstance with the, your prospect. What is the chance that you're going to get in touch with the prospects that are in the time and circumstance that they need to sell at that one specific moment? You're very low. Now, if you consistently do that over the year, over years, continue to follow up, your success rate is going to be substantially higher. I completely buy into that because we, Ray and I, send out direct mail. And we've been doing direct mail for a number of years. And we've been mailing to the same people for mm -hmm. a number of years. And we've gotten calls years after we continue to sell to people. And they said, they literally said to us, we weren't ready then, but we're ready now because X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yeah. So consistency is definitely important because we've noticed people that have called us on our old phone number and we don't even use that anymore. Now we have a call answering service that takes care of it. So we definitely know that these letters are ending up somewhere on somebody's desk, not all the time, but at some point, like you said, circumstance changes, and we've done it for years. When people ask me what can they do, that's what I usually say is if you're going to mail, the problem is budget, right? Exactly. So right. they think they can only spend $500 total. Well, that's not going to get you very much. Yeah. So how do you get them to pass that corner? Can you get them on board sometimes? So I always look at it from the perspective of do you have more time or more money? If you have more time than money— don't do direct mail because it's it will get expensive. So the worst thing that they can do is spend the money and then figure out, crap, I don't, have the, I don't have the money for this. I can't keep doing it. I don't want that to happen. So I always tell them, look at it from the perspective, do you have more time or more money? If you have more time, then cold call, door knock, do the things that don't cost that much money. Throw up uh, bandit signs if they're legal in your area. But if you have more money than time, Look at it from the perspective of create a, a six-month or a year budget for direct mail for your marketing and look at it from, listen, this is, this is put aside for marketing. That's it. That's all I'm going to use it for. And then just be consistent with it. So let's talk about the three core components that you're talking about. Your list, your, the mailers, and consistency. We talked a little about consistency, but where do you get your lists from? Do you offer lists to your customers, or do you only accept your customers' lists? How does that whole process work? I look at lists as there's two different types of lists. There's your general lists, and there's niche lists. General lists are much easier to pull, and you can easily pull them from list source. Now, we do provide our customers with access to list source, um, so they can get at three and a half cents per lead. What is list source? List source is 
a data provider. It's probably the largest data provider in the U.S. that you can start pulling property information based on all different types of criteria, demographics. What type of criteria do people filter for? The very easy ones and the common ones that people know is absentee owners, equity owners. So you can get down and at the very kind of niche list of an absentee owner, you can say, what area do you want to target if they live in state or out of state? What type of property, single family, I want to look at only on ranch, colonial, Cape style homes, specific square footage. They've owned it for 10 or more years. They've purchased the property in 2011 or before, and they're 65 years and older. You can do all that stuff on ListSource. Which criteria are most impactful for a developer who wants to add value? For developers in Boston? Yes. Or, okay. any, or any city. So, I mean, you just, you just yeah. rattled off a number of criteria. <laughs> yeah. And I don't I'm, know why it'd be more beneficial for me to target ranch house owners. So I'm, I'm thinking that maybe it's people who have paid back their mortgage for the most part or otherwise in financial trouble or there. Yeah. So just going back, there's general lists where it's very easy to pull like absentee owners, equity owners, you can pull right from list source. And then there's niche lists. So niche lists are more difficult to pull and where you typically will see a higher success rate because not as many investors spend their time to do it because it just takes longer. For those lists, it's like tax liens. For Massachusetts, we have to request this from town or city treasury department. So you have to actually make a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request. To What's do, that like? It's actually not as difficult as you think. My strategy that I do that for tax liens is just call up all the treasury departments or if they have the email addresses on the website, scrape all the email addresses, put them into a document, and then get the FOIA request information, which I think it's like if you Google Freedom of Information Act uh, public records request, you will get a template of what you should say to them. And basically, I just email everybody that. And by law, they have 10 days to get back to me, whether it's with the list or with, with a cost. Sure. And if the cost is above $10, they have to explain why it is above $10. So generally, it, it'll take me, I just did this about three weeks ago for 25 cities. And I probably have about 22 of them back. So I just have to follow up with a couple of them. Yeah, I saw your Instagram post on doing that. And it looked like, a, I was like, did Justin get an attorney to draft this letter? <laughs> up? It looks pretty official. Yeah, no, it's it's super easy. You can, you can go online and find it. But in addition to tax liens, you can do driving for dollars. You can try to find code violations, evictions. So stuff like that that takes a little bit more time. Does one list work better than the other? I guess it depends on if you are a person that is sending out a ton of mail or doing a large volume of marketing, it's going to be really difficult to build your list with only niche marketing. What I always do is I build all of my general lists and niche lists, put them all together, and then I combine the lists and create a super lead list. What that entails is basically I have a uh, program that will identify each property and how many lists that one property is on. Then it will output only unique properties, and basically beside each property it will tell me, this property is on an absentee owner, a driving for dollars, a tax lien, so now I can sort my leads by the highest quality, middle quality, and low quality. So this gets into probably a lot of your past accounting background, assuming you're very good in Excel and you're very good with data and analysis. How important is that to an investor trying to figure out where their leads are coming from and tracking response rates and, and things along those lines to see where their dollars are going? Tracking is tremendously important. I mean, that's one of the biggest things is you want to 
test everything. I tell people, if you heard from someone else, postcards don't work. Don't listen to them. Test it in your own market because it might work just as well, just as good as letters, and it's 50% cheaper. So the return is going to be higher. Do you find that there is a different return if you are in a desirable location, for example, in the city versus perhaps some suburbs where houses tend to sit longer on the market? A return perspective from like response rate or response from a- rate? Yes. I'm, so, I'd be inclined. My logic would just be that if you are a seller and you know that your house is likely to sell at the first open house on the first Saturday, I may be less likely to reply to that letter. The more competitive the market, obviously, the harder it is, right? I'll tell you, the funniest thing is, historically, I was always in the suburbs. And a couple of years ago, I started to market in Boston. Holy shit, the difference of uh, calls <laughs> that I got. People in Boston are not afraid to tell you how it is um, on the phone. It's really funny. For better or for worse, I mean, I, it, was just, it was just different in how they approached it. I mean, it's, it's very comfortable for me to talk to both sides of the coin, but it was just such a different conversation that I would have. It would be much more of a real conversation. And if, you know, they thought you were full of shit, they'd tell you right on the phone. (laughs) They think you're full of shit. But Um, what about the actual response rates themselves? Yeah, as far as response rates, I think we get a lot more callers that are uh, curious and as well as if they don't want to sell, but they just want to respond to your note saying, hey, thanks, I appreciate it. We get more of those calls in the suburbs than in Boston. If I was to look at more of our conversion rate, I think the suburbs have it over the city a little bit more. Which makes sense. And what about, obviously, other parts of the country? The response rates are probably way, way higher. Yeah, well, national average is about, what I've seen with our customers, is about 1.1, 1.2% for all the different markets. Now, it will change, and that's also mailing them consistently, not just doing one drop, because you could get lucky and get a 5% return, and depending on how many letters. The 1.1% that you referenced, is that over a six-month campaign? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Is that a conversion, meaning you purchase the property, or just a callback? Just a callback. Conversion rates are super difficult to compare because you have so many more variables within the company. What type of investment strategy are you doing? What type of people are you going after? How's your negotiating skills? One company might be right on it with negotiating, so their conversion rate is going to be much higher. So it's hard to compare that. I don't like talking about response rates because it's a shit statistic for your company, but it's the only way that you can truly compare within markets. Can you talk a little bit about the content of the letter? What is important for you to get across? How many paragraphs do you have? What's, um, what are the critical components? The whole point of direct mail is building three things that I look at building rapport, building brand, and building trust. And I do that by sending multiple different types of letters that basically build on the prior ones that I send. So you create almost like a conversation with the seller. I always have my logo. I'm very much into branding because it's much easier for someone to remember a logo than it is a name. So for a lot of my competitors, they'll just use their name or use like a yellow letter. That's why I don't like yellow letters and we don't use them. We never have because they don't stand out. If everybody else is using it, nothing's going to make you stand out from anybody else. For us, it's all about branding, using your logo, channeling between handwritten letters, professional letters, trifold flyers. So we we vary up the letters because not one letter is going to get every single person to respond the same way or respond at all. So we want to make sure that we send out different types of products. So it's just really building a conversation. I generally start out with handwritten letters because it doesn't provide as much information. You'll get an increase in response rates because people will call more curious about what you're mailing to them. And as the campaign goes on, we start using trifold flyers and then professional letters because you can provide more information and you can further screen people out. 
So as the campaign goes on, you're creating this, this rapport with people. Now, do you use the same methods and the same letters as you do for yourself, or do you customize stuff for your JS2 homes personally? It depends. At the baseline, yes. We use everything that we offer in open letter marketing. And I would say it depends because right now we're we're testing out new products that are not on open letter marketing. And we're testing out these products because we want to test them to make sure that they work before we put them on, offer them as a product to people. Nice. Dog fooding. Uh, I don't know what that is, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's you when agree, you... Though. I heard you say yes. <laughs> Sorry. That, that, was, that, that was a Microsoft term I picked up when I interned there. It's basically you create your own food and you, you eat it and you try it out. Oh, they, yeah. call, they call it dog food. Okay, I like that. Do you do any A-B testing? So you might send like almost a controlled study where you have one letter that goes to one group and another and then track the effectiveness of what you said or did in each? We used to. When I started, I did a huge split test between yellow letters and my letters. And what I found that they were 26.7% more effective on the response rates. For people in Boston, we all know that people that have lived here for 30 or more years are hate developers because they're changing, or I guess in general, because they look at it like developers are changing the neighborhoods and they're making them more modern and, and just they don't like that perspective. So while some developers are doing that, I always put in my letters... I'm sending you a letter because I love the neighbor, the aesthetics of the neighborhood and I want to make sure that I keep them intact. So I speak to exactly their pain points of dealing and talking to developers. You guys can't use this, by the way. <laughs> um, what, what if we use open letter marketing? <laughs> <laughs> we'll pay double. <laughs> so depending on, I always think about like, what are people, what are the pain points for people and how can, can I come across in a way that they can connect with. But at the very basic level of the letters, we use all the same letters that we're using in open letter marketing. And we're always testing new products to see what are working well, what aren't, so that we can offer the ones that are working well into um, open letter marketing, which we're doing right now with a email letter that hopefully will come out in the next couple of weeks that's performing actually really well. And it's pretty cool to see the response rates. How many letters are, is open letter marketing sending out every month or every week? On a monthly basis, we do around half a million wow. mailers. And all over the country. Yes. Do they come to you to pick up, uh, they being the USPS, do they come to you to pick up the letters? Do you bring it to them? We, I know you're pre-sorting, I assume. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we, we bring it to them. They must love you. They do. A lot of business. Yeah. We, got a, we bought a sweet van. It's got JS2 homes on it, so a little uh, marketing there, too. How was that working with them, just kind of getting things set up, learning their rules? Was it that complicated? How they like their mail, essentially, so they can get um, it out quicker? It was kind of a learning process. It wasn't all that difficult, but it was a learning process because as we continued to put out a lot more mail, they'd be a little bit more strict in what we can and can't do. So at the beginning, it wasn't that difficult, but then it progressively started getting a, lot, a little bit more structured. Can you go back to what you said about email marketing campaigns? That just struck my interest. I would delete an email so quickly, but you said that it has some effectiveness. Email letter. An email letter. What does that it's mean? It's a direct mail. A direct mail piece. So it essentially looks like you printed out an email that you sent to the prospect, and uh, you're putting it in a mail piece. And when they open it up, it looks like you printed out like a Google email that you sent to them. Why is that anymore? I'm so intrigued. Because at the bottom of the email, it looks there's a PDF attachment, it looks like it. And it says, intent to purchase in their property address. So we're getting a lot of responses from people saying, hey, the email must have been went to spam. Can you resubmit that intent to purchase? So we're getting a lot more interest in people, both on calling us back and just emailing us back. So on this letterhead that looks like the from to line, 
it's their real email address that you're it getting? It just says their name. Oh, okay. And, and it's such a slight little thing that you wouldn't even pick up. That's good. What other innovative approaches have you guys taken to this whole world of direct-to-seller marketing? We come from the perspective of testing things out first and offering things that we know work really well. So we'll go outside of the direct mail front as long as we can create a good uh, system around it and we know it works well. So the other things that we've gotten into is ringless voicemails and IP marketing. And ringless voicemails for the cost that they are, are performing exceptionally well when layered on top of direct mail. And we do it in a very uh, specific way because after we've tested, we've found that what you should do and what you should not do on ringless voicemails. There's, what is ringless voicemail, just for our so, listeners? Yeah, for people that don't know what a ringless voicemail is, it's essentially, <laughs> it's essentially a voicemail recording that you create that you can send it to your list of prospects as long as you have their phone numbers. And it's an automated system that you can do that. What does the voicemail say? Even before that, there are some legalities around ringless voicemail. There's been two court cases, I think, to date. One in California, one in Florida. So Florida and Michigan have state laws against ringless voicemails. At the federal level, they're starting to look at that. So there are legalities around it. But the way that we do it, it's a very soft touch and there's no sale at all. So I think from my from what I think is why people are getting into trouble is because they're sending something that sounds very automated. And then when people call back, they're going to an automated voice message. Hey, we can't answer your phone, but if you got a message from us, press one to connect to Joe Schmo. So ringless voicemail means my phone doesn't ring, but all of a sudden it'll say new voicemail. Exactly. And then there's a message. Yes. Is that a way to get around the do not call list? You were mentioning, you know, they're starting some to legalities. They're starting to look do not call list to be attached to that. So you have to still screen out for that stuff. But as far as the ringless voicemails, I mean, what we use when layered on top of direct mail, and I always use direct mail as a baseline because it's so easy to do any other type of follow-up. Even cold calls, it's really easy to do that after you sent a direct mail. So for our ringless voicemails, it's just going to be like, hey, this is Justin. I sent you a letter the other week. I just wanted to follow up and see if you got that in the mail. If you can, give me a call back when you get a chance. So very soft, very easy. You want to be extremely authentic. And when they call back, you want to actually answer the phone because you'll get a ton of people that will call back as soon as that ringless voicemail hits. They won't even listen to your message. They'll just be calling back because they saw a missed call. So you'll get a huge influx of calls right off the bat. They're not going to be high quality, but I look at it as you're getting in touch with people that you wouldn't have otherwise got in touch with through any other type of marketing form. And whether or not they want to sell, maybe you just have a conversation and you guys hit it off or they say, yeah, I'm not really interested in selling now, but in six months we're starting to think about you know X, Y, and Z. Now you can put them on your follow-up sequence and start following up with them. And you're the first person to know that they might be selling in six months before anybody else has. So are you leaving them ringless voicemail after every letter or are you sprinkling it out throughout the campaign? For our customers, yes. We do it after every every letter. In my own company, we haven't been able to keep up with the phone calls <laughs> that we have to dial it back because we can set a throttle rate of how many ringless voicemails should go out per hour. And we had at one point we had it 
at maybe 200 an hour, and we, we literally couldn't keep up with the calls, two people on the phone. Now, are you recording these voicemails in-house, pre-recording them and sending them out, or how, how does that work? Are you sending letters to accompany these voicemails? So is this a two-pronged approach? Yes. I always look at it from the perspective of what are the struggles that real estate investors have? They don't have time because they're doing so much shit, right? So for me, when I started, and it was just me, or even if it was me and a couple other people, like if you started getting busy with projects, the first thing that's going to drop is your marketing because you're like, oh, I got too many projects going on. I'm going to stop the marketing because I don't really need to market for deals right now. But you just lost all of your kind of snowball effect that you've created and the momentum. The biggest thing for me was to figure out a way that we could create campaigns for investors so they could basically set it up and once and then forget about it. And then they'd have the marketing deploying for the next six months. So we automate the direct mail, the ringless voicemails. We can skip trace phone numbers and email addresses for them. So we have all that system built in. Going back to the whole time thing, right? So you were saying that the ringless voicemails create a lot of calls. What if I don't have time or I'm so busy and all of a sudden I get inundated with 25 or 50 calls? Do you offer services to answer the phone for me? No. <laughs> well, here's the, I think I know we don't we, <laughs> we don't offer any services for like call intake or anything like that. Okay. I mean, that's a legitimate challenge, right? So, you know, you've, yeah. you've now created this really custom, this is my voice. You now know what I sound like. Mm -hmm. And then if somebody completely different picks up, what's that reaction like if well, somebody else is doing the, it? The, like, the are you talking about who's recording the messages? Is it so it's, a, it's up to our customers, but we recommend that they record it. But even if, if somebody else answers the phone, it's going to be more from like, oh, you know, I work with the company. I'm answering the phone. Because you're creating a ton of demand, you're creating a ton of leads for your clients. If they don't have the ability to follow up or answer the phone, then they could say, well, I don't have the time. I'm not going to continue to market. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of a, it's a tough, fi it's a fine line to walk. We can also set the throttle, right? So they could send a 50 an hour. And we can do it if they say, all right, I'm going to be around the phone between 3 and 5 p.m. All right, then we'll send it out between 3 and 5 p.m. Oh, nice. So we can set the time exactly when they want to do it. If they're not around to pick up the phone, they can go to voicemail. If they have a service that will answer it, they can do that. But I would caution against saying, sending it to like an automated voicemail system that says press 1 to do this because it's clearly not a real person that sent that. And especially when they immediately call you back and you're not available. Because um, it makes it just sound like they just missed you. Yeah, yeah. Can we hark back to the just more conventional letter? So what I'm curious is, I've never done direct marketing. The phone you rings. You never. Never. Wow. He still loves MLS, It doesn't work. Right? Don't, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have a budget. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, so let's step back to more of the conventional letter writing. So let's say that I own some properties in Boston, and I just got one of Justin's letters. And uh, if you'd be up for it, let's do a little role play. Let's do it. Hey, Justin, I just got your letter. What exactly is JS2? I, I, I haven't really considered this yet. Awesome. That's great that you got our letter. I'm happy to hear that. So JS2 Homes, what we do is we are real estate investors. So we look to buy properties in the area where your, your property is. So it's just a simple note seeing if you have any interest in uh, selling. What do you even know about my neighborhood? I know from the perspective of the neighborhood, it's an area that I buy in often. I buy in that area because I know it well from the perspective of the neighborhood, kind of what's happening around there, and I just have roots from that side. Did you actually target me and my property, or did you just mass mail my entire block? The way that I find your information is I look at key characteristics of the property. So 
it's probably just because you have this certain number of bedrooms, number of units, number of bathrooms in your property. I don't target every single person. I try to narrow it down to properties that I would actually really be interested in purchasing rather than just blanket everybody. I raised my entire family in this house. Why should I sell to you? Well, you might not want to sell to me. I'm not the best buyer for everyone. I mean, if you're if you're the property's in great condition and you've recently fixed it up, then I'll be very honest with you. Don't sell to me. I would probably list it on the market with a real estate agent. You'll get the most bang for your buck. But and other times that I'm a perfect buyer for people. So where people just don't really want to have to deal with real estate agents or the property needs some work, that's where I can add a lot of value. And my whole thing is I come from the perspective of making it extremely simple for the sale process because everyone has stressors in their life that they have to get move on and not have to deal with selling a property. There's so many other things going on in your life that if it's not something that you want to deal with, I make the process extremely simple. You're right. I, I am very stressed and I have a ton going on. When can we meet? Well, let's get a little bit more information first before we come down because the last thing that I want to do is waste your time. And if we're not at the, in the same ballpark for a price point, then it doesn't make sense to kind of waste your time on a meeting. So what I'd like to do is just get a little bit of information from you about the property. And then once I get the information from you on the property, I can go back, do my analysis, and I can come back to you within 24 hours and give you a ballpark price for your property. And if that ballpark price sounds good to you, then we can set up an appointment. Great. I think that uh, that helps a lot. I think from there, it's, it's cool. you know, the, how the process yeah. goes. But I want a million dollars. So did you take a, um, did you take like a sales, sales course and kind of how to sell and that sort of thing? Or how did you learn? Or was it just from raw experience? When I started, I, I researched a lot and like what paths you should take, what questions you should ask listening, making sure like not only what they're saying, but how they're saying it. So I got into that a lot. I was scared shitless when I started doing direct mail. I was like, please don't call me. Please don't call me. I probably lost a lot of deals because I didn't know what to ask, how to qualify it as a good lead or not. But just over time, you just keep on sending it out. And like anything else, you build experience. I think one thing you did there was, uh, which was very effective, was actually saying that you might not be the best buyer for the situation. It was very honest and authentic. Listen, I'm I'm not going to try to trick anybody into selling to me. I, I never bought a property from anybody that didn't want to sell at the price that I was was offering. I want to just be very honest with them. And whether or not I'm the right buyer, if they want to sell, I want to put them into the right place where it's going to make the most sense for them not what's going to be make, make the most sense for me. Like, I always try to put them first and and make sure I come at it from the perspective of, if these are my parents, would the value that I'm offering be the best opportunity for them? Yeah, we. I mean, we've told people to list on the MLS before just because we feel we said, listen, I think you can get way more money on the MLS. A suggestion for both of you guys, and I'm sure you're already on this, but why not make a referral fee on these those types of deals where you might not be the best go-to? I can list it for you, or I can send it to a friend and keep a quarter-point commission. We do that. The transition to, yeah, we're not going to be your best buyers to, hey, I have a real estate agent that um, can list it for you. The transition is a little bit difficult, and I've been working with different kind of uh, call scripts on that. Because a lot of them will be like, ah, oh, my uncle is an agent or my sister-in-law's niece or whatever is an agent. Working around that, it's a little bit sticky, but I've, I've converted a, a good handful of those. I mean, we've tried. We've thought about it. We've talked to a few agents about 
kind of handling that and how to do the handoff and everything. It's it's tough. You know, it's... It's a trust thing. Yeah. Especially if you're trying... You can't try and do it on the first try. So do you have a general rule of thumb how many calls you go through for something like that? Or I've heard some people say, you know, I'll, I'll, I know we're kind of not talking about direct to, you know, direct to seller marketing anymore. We're talking more about negotiating strategies. But I've heard certain people say, you know, I'm not even trying to sell on the first call. I'm just trying to build rapport maybe on the fourth or fifth call. And I've heard other people saying they're taking sellers out to dinner. I mean, we, we've heard a lot of different things. Yeah, the biggest thing for me on the first call is just uh, data gathering, building rapport. That's pretty much it. And just talking to them and having a conversation. Here's a question. So we had a zoning attorney, Mark LaCasse, on a couple episodes ago talking about you know the zoning process in the city and zoning contingencies and everything like that, just because in a very large urban environment where prices are high and the zoning code is very obscure, you don't know how much you're going to build. So if you're in that situation, you're telling people that you you make the process really easy, et cetera, et cetera. What if you want to go down the zoning contingency route? How do you approach that? I come from it from how much are they looking for their property? And if they want a big number, then Unfortunately, that the contingency is a, just a piece of it. If they want the as-is price of what it's zoned for right now, then they'll get that price as well. So it's all, always what's most important to them. There's time, you know, there's terms, there's price, uh, contingencies. I mean, you can always play things to both favors. And if they're asking for one thing over another, so if they're asking for price, then they got to give a little bit on something else. So it's all about kind of what pain points they have and kind of what their priorities are. Yeah, and it's also understanding, like, what is their goal? Are they looking to move, like, in the next 30 days or 20 days that they have to get out of a bad situation? I have no choice but to buy it as is. But if they have, you know, they have land that they're not doing anything with, that they want a higher price, then a contingency makes sense. How competitive is the industry that you're in? How much market research did you do before you started the company? And what's your competition like? And what do you Uh, charge for such a campaign? I did market research in the perspective that I knew what was out there for companies, and I knew there was a huge void in the market to offer something very high-end and good quality mailers that work really well and are specifically created because they, they work. I knew that there was nothing else out there like that. For me, what kind of really helped Open Letter Marketing branch out was I had a blog for about four years where I basically detailed all of my real estate investing deals. And I had a pretty good following, and I announced it there, and a lot of people saw that I got a lot of my deals from direct-to-seller marketing. So they reached out to me once I said I was going to launch, and um, it kind of went from there. So what's your growth been? So last year, we grew about 400%. This year, we're looking to grow another 200%. What were the startup costs like? Startup costs, so again, starting small, I mean, you get smaller equipment, and as you start to build, you buy larger equipment, larger space you have to have, more people you have to have. (laughs) How many people do you have? So we have right now, um, we're hiring our 10th person. Wow. Nice. Yeah. These are W-2 benefits. Yep. That's awesome. Yep. Do you buy your equipment or rent your equipment? Both. Depends on what it is. Um, We'll either lease or buy. What should a developer expect in terms of a range for a open letter marketing campaign? I would ask them, what is your budget? <laughs> because I can't, I can't tell I, you. I'd respond, what's a responsible <laughs> budget to see some sort of effectiveness? <laughs> How big is your list? <laughs> yeah. Going back to your question about like what lists and stuff for the city, I would look at value plays. 
And I would look at properties that are maybe two family homes in a potentially three unit or more zone, right? Something that you can add value where you can pick up for two family property price. Which um, is none in the, the city of Boston. What's that? The <laughs> price? Or? Zone, no, the zone, zone tends okay. to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you can look at it from the perspective of um, lot size, right? If the property is 1,000 square feet, but it's on a 3,000 square foot lot and it's zoned two FAR, FAR of two, then there's a lot of value that you can create in that. And uh, FAR is? Florida area ratio. So the square footage. So in that example, what did I say? 3,000 square foot lot, you can add 6,000 living area. Um, for an FAR of two. two. No. So if I had $2,500 a year, would that get me no, anywhere? Don't, don't do $5,000 a year. For the a annual basis. So what I like to look at is if you're going to do direct mail at a minimum, like where I would be comfortable, you got to, you got to send at least a thousand mailers a month. I think anything lower than in, that. In any, regardless of the market. The stamp alone is 50 cents. Yeah. Direct mail is all about numbers, right? It's a numbers game. The more people that you target and you, you get in front of, the more opportunities that you have. For me, if you want to be successful and be consistent, I would at least do a minimum of a thousand leads. If you're doing super niche lists, then maybe you can get down a little bit more. But really, I mean, there's a lot of people that are just mailing everyone. So it's hard to get a really nice niche list that not a lot of people are hitting. I'd rather go a little bit larger and to the thousand. What does that cost? A thousand letters a month? You can look at it from a perspective. I mean, then you get into first class or standard mail, but look at it from anywhere from, I don't know, around 80 to 90 cents. And that's just for the letter? Yeah. And then if you want to add the ringless voicemail, the ringless voicemail on top of that. Then ringless voicemails. So they range depending on how much you send. They could be anywhere from five cents to 38 cents. Assuming that's a third party add-on that you've worked with, it's, is, or do you have that in-house as well? We do that in-house. Oh, nice. So we do the service everything. Wow. Yeah. You got wow. it all. We do it all. Love it. We do it all. So Justin, um, obviously, you know, 400% growth last year, looking for 200 this year. Where do you kind of see open letter marketing going in the next five to 10 years? As far as that, like, we're always trying to push the envelope more. and Pun, in, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> good one. Uh, we're always trying to push it and make sure that our materials are always working. Our products and services are always working better than our competition. So that's what we're consistently looking to do. And it's great because from my perspective, I'm doing it both on JS2 Homes and Open Letter Marketing, and I can test different approaches out. So we always want to be on the forefront and right at the leading edge of new technologies, new products, new services that's been tried and tested. And you just know that you're going to get a really good product and re return from that. One question about competition, right? So if I come to you and I want to send mailers to a specific zip code, and then Mark comes to you and says, I want to send mailers to the same zip code. Will you send out mailers to the same zip codes for the same clients and essentially competing against yourself? Originally, we weren't doing that, but now it's at a point that it's so difficult to Id identify where people are mailing because there's a lot of virtual investors. So while they live in California, they could be marketing to Florida. So unless we go through their lead list and identify actually where they're mailing out to, it's really difficult to kind of keep everybody separated. So unfortunately, we can't do that anymore just because of tracking purposes. Here's a bit of an esoteric question. But you can't market in my area. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Zillow starting to make offers to consumers 
seems like that would be a threat or a, level, a competition potentially to your business. It's it's interesting. Is that they're something doing. they're doing? Yeah, they're reaching a very large audience and they're making a similar offer as Justin is and saying, we'll come and we will tell you, they don't even necessarily show up at your house. They will just offer you a value for the property and purchase it. There's the estimate. Well, what, are they gonna, right? what are they Zestimate. doing with the property? Flip it. Wow. I did not know they were doing that. I mean, they're playing on the data game on a much larger scale. There's a bunch of other companies that are doing that as well that have very, very thin margins that they're buying it and then just turning it over. I think with it's like anything else with large companies versus smaller boutique kind of companies, right? Real estate is a very personal business where building rapport and trust with someone is going gonna, is gonna to get you a long way from my perspective, because I've purchased properties way under what other people off my competition offered, but I built the rapport and I built the trust with the seller that they felt very confident and comfortable with me. I think that's going to, it's just going to be instilling your brand and showing that you're trustworthy, building the rapport. I think that's the angle that a lot of investors are going to have to go from. That's a great answer. So before we wrap up here, let's, let's play a quick game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. So we'll introduce a term, uh, a concept, and Justin, you tell us if you think that term is underrated or overrated and and sort of expound on why. So I'll start with the first one, uh, the MLS, underrated, overrated, or appropriately rated. For finding deals? Yes. It's overrated. I mean, it's, I haven't been able to find a deal on the MLS in so long. I don't know. From a deal finding perspective, it's just, you, you can't find, uh, you can't find any deals. What about pay-per-click? Pay-per-click, I would say that I think it's underrated. I don't think people use it as much as they they should use it. A lot of people don't use it because, again, it's a great deal of money, but people just don't know how to use it. So they'll test it, and then they'll see that it doesn't work and immediately stop. It's like anything else. You have to be consistently using the marketing strategy for at least, I would say, four to six months before you can identify if it works or not. A lot of people are testing it out finding that it's not working, and then stopping. I know investors that use pay-per-click and they're doing it really well, and they're getting it over 30% of their deals off of it. So I think that people just don't put a lot of, spend a lot of time in it. How about uh, SEO, which is search engine optimization, which is getting your website to organically get traffic there, which is the opposite of pay-per-click? I would say that it is appropriately rated. Originally, that I, I thought it was overrated, and then I thought it was underrated. And because we've we've been using SEO, and I know of a lot of other investors that use SEO, it's not going to create leads immediately like PPC should, right? Because you're paying to do immediate responses. SEO is going to take some time, and it's going to take some um, some building to do. So people already have that in their head that they need to spend the money over the next X number of months. So they're sticking with it more. So I think the people that are doing it know that they're in for the long run, and they're seeing results. One more. Door knocking. Ooh. I would have to say it's underrated. Whoa. I would. <laughs> I would, I would <laughs> because nobody's fucking doing it. <laughs> nobody's doing it. Because it's a it. giant waste of time. Well, no, or you're just going to afraid you're going to get stuck. You know, you know what? <laughs> well, hold on. Maybe in our market, maybe in our market, but I know a lot of people that are doing door knocking, they're fucking crushing it. Yeah. They are. They have a lot of people that are going out door knocking because nobody else is doing it. I would say underrated because everybody... That's one of the scariest things that people can do, and they just push it off like, I'll never do this because I don't want the confrontation. Anecdotally, I've only heard one other person doing it, and they said it took a lot to get the deal, to get that first deal. 
I think that's all a numbers too, right? You yeah. have to you have to go in front of a lot of people, so you have to build out systems for that stuff. That's also one of those things, like you mentioned earlier, time or money. So if you don't have the money, then that's right. that's basically free besides and, gas. And you can target specific people too. You can target only people that are going into foreclosure in a month, right? You can be very targeted on how what people's uh, doors you knock on. How about bandit signs? <laughs> hmm, that's a tough one. Do you do them? I used to. They never worked for me. Can you explain what they are? So it's a, basically a, a, a large sign that says, we buy houses, and you put it up around in like heavy traffic areas so people see your signs on like posts. I see them right? everywhere. Assuming right it's now. bandit because you have no permission to put such a yeah. advertisement up. Yes, and I started doing it, but then I took a step back because I was like, it was hard for me to feel good about my brand when I was putting stuff up around the town and city. And then people more getting pissed off about it. And then the, you have police, you know, the police call you and stuff like that. So I, ju- I just stopped doing it. And I figured I'd rather, for my brand sake, I would rather do other, other forms of marketing. Speaking of police, we had the police call us one time because a person got mad that we kept direct mailing them. And oh, yeah. Said, you could just tell yep. us to take us off the list. Yes. You know, that, that works too. I've definitely gotten those calls. What could the crime possibly Nothing. be? There is no crime. Do you call the cops on Domino's sending you a coupon? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I wish I could call the cops on uh, those those like newspaper flyers that show up every week. Oh, I can yeah, never I get off those lists. Yeah, what is it, Spectrum Like or Red something? Plum or Spectrum? Yeah, yeah, yeah. one of those two. <laughs> Justin, let's recap. So you have JS2 Homes, Open Letter Marketing. How can people find you? They can find me on Facebook and Instagram going to The Boston Investor, or they can shoot me an email at justin at openlettermarketing.com. Thank you, Justin. There we go. Yeah, thank you very much, Thank Justin. you, guys. I appreciate it. This is awesome. It's been yep. great. Hopefully yeah. everybody gets something out of this, and we'll catch you guys on the next one. Take care. Take care. Yep. See you.